to come back to the industry and say something you guys thought was impossible has now changed, right? Was an eye-opener for many people. Hello and welcome to Kickback, the global anti-corruption podcast. The Maritime Anti-Corruption Network is a global network of shipping businesses which is making some real progress in combating corruption in a challenging sector. In this episode, the CEO of the network, Cecilia Muller-Torbrand, speaks to Liz David Barrett about the journey so far. There are lots of valuable lessons here for anyone with an interest in anti-corruption reform, including how to get the incentives right to engage government and the private sector in anti-corruption, and how data can be usefully employed to make the case for change. There are also some fascinating examples of effective collective action in Argentina and Nigeria. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoy the episode. So hello everyone and welcome to Kickback. I'm Liz David Barrett and I'm a professor at the Centre for the Study of Corruption at the University of Sussex. And I'm delighted to be joined today by Cecilia Muller-Torbrand, who is the CEO of the Maritime Anti-Corruption Network, a really interesting collective action initiative that she's going to tell us all about in a moment. So hi, Cecilia. Hi. Great to have you here. I wondered if you could start off by just telling us a little bit about yourself and how you personally got interested in anti-corruption. Yeah, of course. Thank you. And thank you so much for for allowing me to come and speak at your podcast. Yes. So I am a lawyer by training, went to law school in Sweden and started to work at a big multinational shipping company about a couple of months after I graduated. So I came into this, you know, corporate world early on, uh, started to uh, work in shipping, which was also fairly new to me. I spent some time in different departments, but then I was really happy to land in a sustainability department. And I think that's also part of the journey of, of MACN, which we will come to, right? Mm-hmm. In the sustainability department, I was very focused on integrity and ethics. So with a legal background, but not a traditional compliance officer background, but was really allowed to, to explore the, the wider scope of integrity and ethics and was also part to put some innovation into that role, um, which is also something that I think a lot of professional professionals think about in terms of what can I do in my current mandate? And I was lucky in a sense to, to be able to both have the perspective of looking at this from a broader lens, but also uh, the sustainability department was, was put under chief operating officer. So in and in a shipping company, that means I had to, I was allowed to interact a lot with the front line, the captains, the one who was actually sailing, the ones who was actually exposed to the risks, right, on a day-to-day basis. So very early on in my career, I had the opportunity to travel and meet these people who've been sailing for 30 years in all countries of the world, which I think also triggered my interest for, for anti-corruption, but also really to say, what can we do to support these people? Uh, because I got the input, um, you know, directly from from uh, from frontline. So actually, maybe you could tell us a bit more about the input you were getting, because I remember when I first heard about the Maritime Anti-Corruption Network, I kind of thought, well, what is the corruption in shipping anyway? Where is it occurring? And and then heard some of the stories. So yeah, what were people telling you, all those captains that you were meeting and talking to? Yeah, so those who may not be familiar with shipping, I mean, just to to give a brief introduction to say that, of course, we are the backbone of international trade. I think over 
80% of all the cargo are transported by, by, by sea, right? So we are instrumental in the world's economy in the sense. At the same time, when a vessel are going into a port, um, there are multiple government interactions from different departments, and it happens actually throughout the port visit. So the, the government interaction, the frequency of those government interactions, the high-risk countries that the shipping is actually operating in, and the element, the time element that lies so much in the logistic side of things that, you know, things needs to move quickly because the, the spot that the vessel is in is needed by another vessel and the vessel then have to go to a different port makes this like th- this dynamic, uh, really uh, high risk operation, I would say, from a corruption perspective. Um, yeah, lots of government interaction, lots of time pressure, competition, other ships that will come and I think take the cargo if you don't and and some high risk contexts in which you're operating as well. Yeah. And also very, I mean, the captains out there are quite isolated, if you think about it. They are like, you know, far away from whatever, wherever head office is, if that's in Europe or somewhere else, they are often, you know, quite alone in their in their mandate to make these decisions. So unless you have good rollout anti-corruption program, which is basic questions of who you're going to call, who, how are you going to actually support these captains uh, when a decision needs to be made or when a, they have been faced with a demand? How are they going to be supported? That is also, of course, adding to that risk we just talked about, um, that you need to have very well articulated uh, compliance programs and also good internal channels, which is normally one of the biggest challenges for people out there. How do I reach the people who are exposed to these risks, right? And that becomes very hands-on in shipping. Yeah. And and sorry, I interrupted. But so tell us a bit more about so what are the actual challenges when they're interacting with those government officials? What are the government officials demanding? How do they kind of couch their demands? Yes. So there's an ocean of challenges, haha, into this into this topic. But a typical case could actually be that there is a strong gift and hospitality. I'm saying that with abbreviation marks, but a strong gift and hospitality expectation when you're calling certain countries, right? So that that can start off with they are asking for a package of cigarettes or packets of you know soft drinks. And they may seem small, but if you're looking at the quantity and the number of officials, there's no doubt that there is corruption in there from facilitation payments to bribes depend the bribes demands, depending on how big, how big of the request is. The challenge actually lies in when the captain is then saying no to those uh, to to those demands, right? Because you don't know what what is then happening, what um, what door are they then opening? Because if they then threaten to, if they then would say, well, then we just because you weren't giving this gift, we're going to inspect the vessel, we're going to stay there for five hours, they're going to find something for sure. It's it's a big asset, right? If they go around all parts of the vessel, they're going to find something we may even be valid, right, as as a fine, right, then suddenly they say, now it's not that type of cigarette. Now, because we stayed on board uh, six hours, you get a fine of so many thousands of dollars, right? So then the captain is in in a different challenge they have to have to overcome. So it's that typical scenario, but it's also more serious ones that we see safety issues, we see Captains being illegally, unlawfully, I would say, arrested in certain places, passport being confiscated. So there is, we have also seen threats of violence on board. So it is actually a magnitude of, of issues that that these frontline uh, people have to face. Yeah, it's very interesting. And um, yeah, as you say, in, in a way, they're, they're quite vulnerable and on their own. So can you tell us then about the Maritime Anti-Corruption Network? Um, how did it come about? How long has it been around? How has it changed over time? 
Yeah, so MSN started about 10 years ago, and I think it was just around the corner of, you know, the enforcement of the UK Bribery Act, which where a lot of companies was really holding their breath in terms of how would that be, what we do, we, we kind of have to do something here to address this, right? Specifically in shipping, this was because UK is a shipping uh, nation, a shipping hub, a lot of companies was really reflecting on this piece of legislation. At the time, because I've been part of MSN since the very beginning at the time, as I said, we were also training a lot of captains and there are three questions that keeps coming back. And <clears throat> this is interesting. This was 10 years ago. But if I'm doing training sessions today with our members, especially for, for captains who may not have been so exposed to MSN and anti-corruption policies, it is still the same questions. And the questions are really like, if if I'm the only one who says no and everybody else says yes, what am I exposing myself to uh, and what am I exposing? What am I exposing the company to? Many of these people, which I don't think is any different from any other industries, that they they're not necessarily acting because they're malicious. They're acting because of they they're loyal to their company. They think they can do something. If they do this, they will do. They will save the company money, or they will do it because they have certain performance indicators that drives that behavior. Right. So the first thing was just what am I expect? What am I exposing myself and my my company to if I start to say no to this? The second question was a bit of frustration because they're saying we are calling these countries that where corruption occurs, what are they doing about the issue? Why is it only on me or on us or the private sector, et cetera? And then the third question, uh, which is, is about the behavior change, is also like if someone has been in a certain profession for a long time, again, I don't think there's any difference from shipping from any other business. If you've been doing something for 30 years, how are you going to get that person to really believe in that change and implement that in a day-to-day -day business. So those three elements actually was and still is the foundation for MACN, right? That we went back to the drawing table, me and uh, and the team and my manager in, in the role I had then, but also, you know, we were networking with a couple of, of other companies who I felt we are actually on the same page here. So it started by being eight to 10 companies around the table, having these conversations. Can we look at corruption from an industry perspective rather than we all sitting working in silos to support the people who are actually faced with these challenges on a day-to-day -day basis? And so that was 10 years ago. And now we are over 180 companies in the network, growing uh, lots of interest in, in our sector for this. Um, I left uh, my previous employer to work for, worked for MACN in a leadership position in 2017. And uh, now we are based in Copenhagen and we have we are now operating in uh, seven countries across the globe uh, using a methodology, uh, working with governments, working with private sector, aiming at that behavior change, right? So coming back to those three questions. MACN started with these eight or 10 companies um, sitting around the table. It's got a lot bigger in a relatively short amount of time. Tell us about what it does. So maybe we could dive into one of the countries where MACN's done some interesting work. So, for example, I know a lot of interesting work has been done in Argentina. Can you tell us about that? Yes. Let me first just see a bit on when we look at the problem of anti-corruption, we have three main legs that we kind of uh, continue to explore and to, to continue to provide service and input to. And that is the capability leg, collective action and collaboration. And, and capability, ability. I just want to mention that because it speaks a bit to some of our country, like Argentina, what we've done there. But capability building really speaks to helping uh, companies to to progress on, on, you know, to do to be better on compliance in general. So we don't vet and we don't certify companies. And we do that because 
one, there are other initiatives that does that and, and, and other standards. And secondly, because we want to help the company to progress, right? So companies have come to us who are worked with compliance for a very long time. They can also be companies that are very new on this agenda. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is the value of also that we can bring. We can bring some community solutions to the table. We are experts of our industry. So the, the solutions we provide on a compliance in the compliance environment can be quite specific. The element of, of that is also that in MACN, we have the different member categories, which is also important when I'm coming to the countries, that we, we just don't have one specific type of business in shipping. So to, to be specific, we would have the cargo owners who would carry the cargo. We would have the ship owners who would operate the vessels. We would have the ship management who would put the crew on the vessel. We would have port agents who is the very important middle man between when a captain uh, is in a port and interacting with the government in the local language. We will have insurance providers. We will have where the vessels are registered. And all of that creates a value chain in the industry uh, that helps us to move this agenda. It also incentivizes the individual members to progress because if you have your customers in the room, if you have your suppliers in the room, you can't point fin- fingers at someone who's not who is in the room, and at the same time, you create an incentive to work on this, to progress on this, to be better. Specifically, also because you have peers in the room, right? So we trigger engagement also through a bit of competition, but also because we have an upstream and downstream type of membership where there's a common denominator, and that is the shipping, that is the maritime trade angle. Yeah. And I actually, I think that's, you know, it's worth emphasizing those things about how collective action works. So that value chain is really important, I think. And it means that you can get even really small companies that might be facing a lot of that potential kind of retaliation if they don't pay bribes. But if they can say, well, you know, I need a really, I need to have a really clean slate because that's integral to my being able to supply this larger company or you know I would lose my position basically in this value chain if I wasn't clean so it also gives companies often this not just the incentive but the way of justifying the fact that they're not paying the bribe I think which just socially can be helpful because it's you know difficult to resist sometimes I think and and for for the industry because we have thousands of players this has been a, a long journey I think for other sectors this would have come quicker but just to give you a few practical examples of that before going into the countries again but you know, just, you know, today we may, we have port agents, certain regions who come to us and say, we cannot operate without being associated with MACN. Our customers require us to have, you know, to be associated with your with your organization because, you know, it has such an impact in the region and the market we were in. That's fantastic. Um, Virtuous circle. Yeah, exactly. Right. And and if you're looking at, you know, the social media aspect, I just had an example uh, a few days ago where... Uh, a shipping company posted a note on what they're doing on anti-corruption and MACM was tagged because they're not currently a member, which is, you know, nothing wrong with that. We encourage all good efforts, but we were tagged so many times as an, oh, you should join MACM. So peers in a network are putting that pressure, right? And it's not about commercially driving something. It's it's really about the genuine, they Mm -hmm. really care about the industry. And that it comes back to how important it is to have a sector-driven approach for these type of issues, right? Because Um, there's a common identity there. So it helps right? Exactly. And uh, yeah, so so sorry, but I just needed to, I think that was just important because then when we're coming to countries, which was also uh, quite early on in MACN establishment, we felt like, 
we cannot just sit and hold hands in in northern europe and and say that you know compliance is good and we need to do this and blah blah we need to be practical and to uh, that took us quite early on to some of the high risk markets that we worked in so i'm happy to speak a bit about argentina and also nigeria but starting in argentina it's interesting because any project any country we've looked at everybody says oh it's completely impossible you can't do anything it's been like this forever you know, really, that's that's the that's it's been the whole I don't know demotivation, but also maybe triggering, right? That I think we can do something, right? In Argentina, it was a very specific case because we were seeing when a vessel comes in, uh, you need to clean the tanks because it's a health regulation, right? Because it's going to export grains out of the country, and grain exportation out of Argentina is a huge revenue for the country, right? So it's a big commodity. And there were challenges around that, the inspections, the government inspections around that. And everybody knew about it and nothing, no no one kind of really looked at this from, from the perspective of what can we actually do? This is corruption. How are we going to solve that? Inspections which were around kind of hygiene and whether the ship is allowed to carry grain. and, and Exactly. That. And of course, uh, what we see um, in all of these challenges we're facing that in many cases, there are legislation for good for good purpose. Let's not forget that. But also that is being misused by either wide discretionary powers among the government officials or there are not, there are not enough protocols written to really see how should they apply the law in practice. And that becomes very hands-on in shipping. Who, how many people is going to go inspect the, the tanks? Where can you escalate when there is a challenge and you can bribe yourself out of or you can request the uh, money because then the tanks will be cleaned, right? I mean, so, so there's the whole incentive of running a bit of a business on the side for how the tanks can be clean and not clean. And it was funny enough because also when we started that exercise, we didn't know if the money is going up, how high is it going up? You know, you know, how do we actually, how do we actually start exploring this problem? And I think in every country we work in, we have amazing local partners. I must really give them cred. Like these are people that are, we bring in, we do heavy, I don't know, assessments before because we, we really, they need to have the heart and the soul of MACN and our methodology. But they also, they come in uh, early on to really advise us on first, how would we put the corruption issue in front of a government? How would we make them prioritize this particular challenge? And, and in this case, in Argentina, it was also about, you know, mapping how, what are the, where's the, where's the money go actually, Right. So we had a, a fantastic partner Argentina to help to do that. And, and one of the big steps in that process was really to, we really understood early on that if we, we, we're going to be successful, we have to get the local port agents, the local business involved in that. And we have to convey the message that need to, they need to turn the page and they need to understand that does this is this is um, practices that can no longer continue. About having a local partner, so that's that's a civil society organization, is it, or a company, or yeah, it can be both. We have civil society in certain countries. We have UN Global Compact in some countries, and we have law firms in some countries. So that's really where we go and really see who knows who and who can be good. And and uh, I don't know if we've been lucky or if there's just amazing people out there. But in all of our countries, we have we work with fantastic people who helps us to navigate the challenges on the ground. Yeah, so in Argentina, yeah, yes. how does it look now? What did you do? 
Yeah. So when we went out and we mapped and we did, uh, we mapped the exercise, uh, we mapped the money, we mapped the challenges, we managed to get the buy-in from the government uh, to really say, you need to work with us on this. And and I think three years into that project, we managed to actually get a legislative team reform approved that was actually strengthening the inspection scheme, which everybody talks about the legacy of how long that can take. But I think if you have enough incentives and build a really good foundation, and in this case, we really tapped into the trade angle. You know, we were really saying that this is one of your largest commodities revenues for the country. And this is how the sector is working right now. And this will, you are actually you know, hindering some of the trade you have with this protocol that you currently are working uh, with. And the only reason we can do that was because we were, we at the time had a fantastic local business community uh, of individual companies who were really supporting us to do this. And I think they are still one of our most active local businesses. They have a fantastic network, but also that we have international business who were, of course, coming in and taking the cargo out and really require a different type of protocol based on compared to how things have worked in the past. So what makes people follow the protocol? Because often in anti-corruption, we say, well, it's not just about changing the rules. It's, you know, it, often there's an implementation gap. So so then what's the next part of the, the picture in terms of what makes it work? Yeah. And that's where I would come back to the sector driven approach, like for, for MACM, because we have vessels trading, our members trade in and out, we can really keep a good pulse on what's happening on the ground, right? Once the protocol has been established or the legal reform or what was required um, um, on a country level, but specific for Argentina, we can actually map, has the demands go down, all your port agents cooperating, are escalation uh, happening when there are demands being made um, into. So because we have, because through the membership, we have so much pulse on the ground, we can actually constantly assess the implementation of those protocol processes, rules, whatever it is, right? And in, in Argentina, we saw we had a 90% reduction of corrupt demands. So we had a baseline and we can just see it dropping, right? And of course, that was important for the government, but for the industry, to come back to the industry and say something you guys thought was impossible has now changed, right? Was an eye-opener for many people. And, and of course, also in Argentina, because I think many of the local business didn't see this change that they did. I don't think they, be, my personal thing, I don't think they believe in it in the beginning, right? So and now they're really active. Concept kind of thing. Yes, exactly, exactly. So, so I can say that was a very hands-on, practical, but a very specific task uh, because it, it was very, you know, in terms of the trade, in terms of the challenges, right? And then it's about keeping that momentum, right? I mean, even now um, where we are a few years down the line, we're still there. We still need to be present, right? We still need our local partner. They do training. They interact with the governments. We do, we frequent, there's a, there's, I don't know, I don't want to call it maintenance mode either because we always are very ambitious with our countries. But specifically for this, it's really important that we stay and are on the pulse. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that will, I think, the, that would be the same for, for any anti-corruption project. That Having a project and think you can finish it and then go away, yep. I'm not sure if that will ever work, right? But of course, a lot of our, our members that operate in this environment every day are also the pulse on the ground, right? So it's not MACM per se, but it's through the membership where they really give us this information and also dare to challenge when there are things not not right, then we can also go back to the authorities because we can do that in in a as an industry voice rather than right. one local business have to put their neck out to say something is wrong, right? So as an as a collective, again, you've got much greater. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. 
Also, my academic ears pricked up because you must have a lot of data about what you've done and what you've achieved in ports. So I'm sure for the, the academics and the researchers listening, that would be of interest. Are you, and you're obviously monitoring that and using that a lot yourself. Yes. One of the strongest uh, tools that we have is, is um, again, early on, we said we need to have some data on challenges. And uh, we actually started an anonymous reporting mechanism early on and started like it started with one incident. That's all it takes. But today we have 54,000 incidents of corrupt demands globally covering over a thousand ports. We have now moved that into a platform uh, that we call the Global Port Integrity Platform, which is GPEB, which is then and it's not an index and we are careful of putting like all data out to the world because again, we want that collaboration with government. We don't want a name and shame type of structure, but that data of course gives us, it's a door opener to governments because, and I should have brought that up in Argentina, we we had data at the time. So we were able to, to get that collaboration going, not only because the importance of trade, but also because we had data of corrupt, anonymous reported corrupt demands, right? And and we don't try to convey that as, as evidence in any shape or form. For us, it's just, we showcase it's a systemic issue and we encourage the government to do more root cause analysis of those potential demands that happens, right? And I think in the, the world we're living in currently with data, I think there's, of course, data should be good and data can always be better, but we also sometimes looking for the perfection of this, right? And, and I think sometimes we also have to say, well, we say this is an indication of risk. It's sure. not evidence, but the indication of risk is sometimes enough for someone to take action on it or someone to believe there is actually something going on. And it's definitely been a door opener for us across the globe when we work with governments that would say that we have some data, industry data we can bring to the table in combination with having so many companies in the network. That has been enough to uh, even convey the most governments who might be more known to be more challenging to collaborate with non-for-profits or with the private sector. We have gotten them to the table because I think partly because of, of the way we operate, but also what we can bring to the table, the the, the risk analysis we can bring to the yeah. table. Yeah, absolutely. It's really interesting to hear that about yeah the power mm -hmm. of having some evidence, although, yeah, as you said, need to say you know, what this can tell you and what it can't, but um, but really very can be very persuasive. So I know that you also had a, a really good project in Nigeria. Was that completely different to the Argenti Argentina one or, mm -hmm. or similar? Could you tell us about that? Nigeria was actually our flagship. And many people laugh of that because we were 20 companies when we started in Nigeria. So that was actually before Argentina. But it was also a much bigger project. And uh, it, like, why did you start with a country that might be known for being mere you know, challenges and very corrupt? And I think we went into that with the attitude, like, if you can solve things in Nigeria, you can solve things everywhere, right? <laughs> And we learned a lot in Nigeria. Um, I was uh, actually uh, leading on that project when I was sitting in uh, in my company, where I was still involved with MACN, of course, uh, served as the chair. Um, I was going down to Nigeria and, uh, you know, committing measures of corruption uh, in the port sector. But, but again, you know, uh, 20, 30 companies when we started that project, again, we thought we were a lot of companies coming together, right? Uh, we also had data that uh, early on. So it actually started with knocking on the door for government saying there are corruption in your ports. 
At the time, we also had international bodies. We managed to get the UNDP to support us in initiating those dialogues. So like a neutral, you know, recognized third party that can help us to, to convey the message. And, and, and um, later, we, we have a fantastic civil society partner who is a well-known integrity champion who helps us to run the program. But I think in Nigeria is actually one of the countries where we, we come the furthest in terms of government engagement. Uh, we work directly with the vice president's office on these issues. Uh, Nigerians have been very open on the root cause analysis involved a heavy process, which we 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 supported. One of the conclusions that 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 root cause analysis showed was that again, the wide discretionary powers of officials that you can come on board and you can look at mm-hmm. anything and you can come on board several times. There can be 40 people coming on board. We were able to initiate a process where they took ownership of drafting this, what we call standard operating procedures. So we were there as a supporter, but we didn't dictate the terms for them. So again, the ownership on the government side was crucial in actually getting those, what we call today, SOPs drafted. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we rolled out training of those SOPs. So, and what I want to say with that is that, yeah, you might start a conversation that is about corruption. But very early on in the process, we link those challenges to the government's own agenda. And in Nigeria, it was a lot about trade. You know, they had made a national commitment to work more, to, to foster economic, social economic growth, to make sure that the trade is more diversified. And we could have, we could tap into that. So we have actually never used corruption as an isolated course to drive implementation or improvement. Instead, we have said we need to be smart enough as an initiative, although we call the anti-corruption initiative, to really say that, okay, what will what will make this government come to the table? And here I really want to make you know uh, a key argument, which I think is important, that we have to remember that if, if the argument corruption is bad, it hinders social economic development, will be the argument we, we use we would have, if that were enough, we would have solved this issue a long, long time ago. Yeah. So this is the, this is where the money is. Exactly. What is incentivizing that government to come to the table? And for us, it's trade. For any other business, for any other compliance professional out there, they need to kind of make up their own arguments. And that's, again, why the sector-driven approach is so important, because we can say you have in your mandate to diversify trade or to improve trade. We come with you with these challenges, which is aligned with your national strategy. You're not going to reach a national strategy if you have these challenges in these ports, right? So I think early on, even in a challenge, challenging country like Nigeria, we were able to incent- truly incentivize the government, right? And I've been defending Nigeria in many forums uh, because there's this perception. But but I do think that that was really what brought them to the table. And then being really concrete about you need to own your own processes. It, you know, we're not dictating that for you. The training, of course, we have integrity training, but we also have training in the SOPs. So again, what is the implementation of these mitigating actions, right? It's not just about a policy. It's about, you know, SOPs and how you get on board. So it's about training them in that, mm-hmm. um, rather having anti-corruption training that people will leave the room and then, you know, they will barely remember, right? So you have to implement the anti-corruption initiative early by anchoring into protocols on how people act on a day-to-day basis. Yeah. Um, yeah. And train them in that and then be with them as, you know, problems will pop up. I'm sure that whenever you develop these kinds of procedures or or laws or anything they're always things that you didn't think about so that's another reason I think the training is important in terms of being there to solve those problems 
And that's also where we've taken it to the next level. And, and uh, we also started a help desk so companies can call in when they are being faced with a corrupt demand. So, or when there's something dodgy in the interaction with the government uh, or through the port agents, they can actually call into our local help desk, which is again, our local partner, MSC, and we are monitoring that. And we have been very active, but right now it's it's uh, um, it's working really well. So it's gone to our local partner and we have then taken it to the next level. So now there's actually a task force within the government. So there's a government help desk that operates in real time. And this has been the uniqueness of, of the Nigeria case is that we started with protocols, processes, trainings, but the behavior change actually on the basis that when you get people to understand lies in the understanding of when there are issues, the private sector dares to escalate that. And there is a response time that is relevant to the timeline of a business, right? So it's not, thank you, we'll come again, you'll hear from us in six months. It's really down to hours of support, um, investigation, and, and we can also see that cases that took seven to 10 days to resolve, we are now down to one to four hours of resolving these cases. Again, managing, monitoring that by data. I can speak a lot about Nigeria in terms of how we actually then now create transparency. So it's it's the accountability of the government in solving these issues. It's MSCN and our local partner standing as a monitoring slash support body to make sure that you know private sector does their part, government do their part, and that's that dialogue is as friction-free as possible. We monitor performance. So again, how many cases were actually were there, how many cases were resolved, how many people are using the help desk without it leading to any cases? Because that's what we're starting to see now that they are they are just saying, hey, we are coming to call Nigeria, which what we call a pre-rival notification, which is really, there's no issue there. It's just say we're coming, right? Mm -hmm. And then we monitor how many of those notifications that actually lead to a challenge, right? And we can see that those challenges are going down. So, which is fantastic. That's how you see, again, the implementation of that integrity behavior uh, lies in data, but it also lies in that there are consequence management on the government side when there are issues, they're not in line with those standard operating procedures. So it's hard work. It took some time. We learned a lot in our uh, Nigeria uh, project, but it's also extremely practical. Data, it's SO standard operating procedures, is consequence management, is building a compliance culture. It's monitoring that through the experience between an individual captain and an individual government official, right? Yeah. And and you mentioned there the sort of the learning process. I wonder just sort of reflecting a bit more broadly for companies in different industries and sectors. Do you have any reflections on conditions for success for this kind of collective action business integrity initiative? Sector, sector-driven approach, you need to find common denominator, especially people in high-risk countries would appreciate to engage with their peers to make sure they don't feel alone. I think that's that's the, the psychological effect of that is, is completely underestimated. Data doesn't have to be tricky. I think it's bringing some type of evidence to the table. It doesn't have to be collecting individual names or, you know, it's about identifying a risk. And if you do that as a collective, you are less exposed. And that will appreciate it by, again, the one who faced these challenges. Knock on the doors for government. I'm surprised how, you know, we were 20 companies when we went down to Nigeria and met people. And, and I think there is like this, this 
taboo around, you know, corruption. We can't talk about it. We can't like, well, of course, depends how you talk about it. And in the end of the day, you're meeting in every country we are, we are or have worked in or are working in, we meet these champions, you know, also in the government and also in, you know, civil society or law firms who who know how to place this topic in a relevant context mm-hmm. to get that multi-stakeholder approach to work. And I think that we are not thinking enough outside of the box. And I think the reason why I was allowed to think about that initially, because I was not sitting maybe in a legal department. Uh, I was allowed to have more innovation um, in in my portfolio um, when we're looking at integrity and ethics. So I think that the the learning is also to, in in your profession, that allow yourself to think out of the box, right? Mm -hmm. Allow yourself to listen to people when you go down and meet your frontline or your suppliers, whoever it is. They will speak to you if you ask if you if you ask the right questions, and you will learn something on the way for how you can be better in supporting these people in in high risk markets. Um, Any particular difficulties that you've had to overcome? I mean, I guess you've talked us through some of them, but again, anything that you still think is a really hard challenge when you're doing this kind of work. Well, the challenge is, I think, the investment in it that somehow I think we're sitting with these big programs and think that we roll it out and we kind of forget that it is actually in every individual needs to believe in that. So there's a time investment in actually conveying this message on an individual basis to people, right? In the pace that I think society is going at at the moment, there's like you miss a bit to say that you actually have to sit down with people and allow them to maybe share their frustration and then you have to convey the right message. And you can't do that with rolling out a policy to to 2,000 people, right? There has to be this. So there's a time investment that you need to be able to to believe in that it's going to work in the end, right? And then, of course, Rome wasn't built in a day, you know, that that you also have to have an appreciation of celebrating every success. You can focus on a negative or you can celebrate the positive things, right? And specifically when you're working in this market, specifically if you have a compliance background, uh, you might come from an environment, uh, if you're going into business or you may come from a profession where you haven't really seen, you haven't been exposed to these risks. I think you have to remember that, if you want a genuine change in your current role, wherever you are, you have to also appreciate that it takes time. You have to celebrate, you know, even if it's not, a. am going to be really concrete here. Even if you don't get the zero or whatever you're doing, if you get half of it, you get zero next time. So demonstrating progress in that journey is still your best defense against skepticism or against prosecution or whatever it may be, right? But I think that's really important that there's a time investment in in people. There is a appreciation of anti-corruption can be built on incentives, progress. You can celebrate that. And they are heroes in every single country, both on the government side, both finding right partners, or also if you are employed and you have employees, business partners, find those. If they speak to your cause, you have won so much. Yeah, no, and yeah, actually you make it all sound so exciting, yeah. I can see why people will want to get involved. They want to be part of this community that is making the impossible happen. Final question, um, because we've kept you a long time. I wonder if 
sort of thinking about the future of anti-corruption collective action, what do you see as some of the most promising avenues or emerging opportunities in the field? I mean, the simple answer to that is that there is definitely not enough. I don't think that you can have, I'm going to be really honest here, I don't think you can have an effective compliance program if you don't have collective action as an element of that. Right. And that I don't mean you're sitting with other compliance officer talking about standards that I really mean to see what am I faced with? What is my company faced with? What is my organization faced with? And how do I find peers in this field so we can have a collective? I, I don't see that working. And I don't think we have enough of collective initiatives out there. I mean, I would love to see more of MACNs. This, you know, I, I think it's it's fantastic to see how we're moving and all our amazing partners who does, you know, that we're expanding to new countries. But of course, it would be fantastic to see these popping up in other sectors as well, right? Very concretely, because only then we can create a change in, in the whole country or, you know, in the whole global world we live in, right? But I think that's that's that is the simple answer. There needs to be more. There needs to be more thinking, more innovation in um, anti-corruption uh, program implementation in general, I think. That's great. And I think a really strong message to end on there that this collective action is not a, a luxury add-on to a compliance program. It should be an absolutely integral part of a compliance program. So, uh, Cecilia, thanks so much for coming along. It's been really fascinating to hear about the Maritime Anti-Corruption Network and all your work in this area and about collective action more broadly. Thanks. Thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to be here.